All right, we've been teaching a while, on, well, a while, maybe three services on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so last Wednesday, we started teaching on the five things tongues accomplishes. Really, there's eight. We only got through five of them. So I thought I'd back up and hit this again with the running momentum, cover the first five again, kind of brush the tangles out. I have daughters. I understand brushing tangles. Usually you get that one and you it snags and they start to holler and they're screaming a little bit. And uh, then you say, be still or I'm going to snatch that whole thing out of your head. I think that's how mamas have done it since time immemorial. And you stop that crying or I'm going to give you something to cry about. You hadn't gone to bed with your hair wet, all natted up like a rat's nest. We wouldn't have these problems. Anyway, I don't think we have these kind of tangles, but we'll brush them out anyway. We've thoroughly proven that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an experience in Christ subsequent to salvation. That is an offensive statement to those that aren't spirit-filled. We were all once like that. Uh, I think most of us came over to spirit-filled circles from denominational churches. God bless them. They gave us our foundation. They gave us strength. They gave us wisdom. They gave us uh, core doctrine. But a lot of denominations are ignorant of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I call that theoretical Trinitarianism or incomplete Trinitarianism. It's one thing to talk about the members of the Godhead. It's another thing to understand their roles. And to that extent, we should point out that each member of the Godhead still is performing a different and distinct role in our lives today, even in the lives of non-believers. If their roles aren't different, what's the point of a trinity? And so everybody will sound the alarm if you say anything wrong about the trinity, if you just get an analogy halfway into modalism or halfway into partialism. But when you start asking, okay, so there are three distinct persons, tell me their different roles. Well, one's the Father, not talking about that. Well, one's the Son, not talking about that. One's the Holy Spirit, not talking about that. What are their functions in the lives of the believers and in the lives of the heathen? And so Trinitarians often, we are Trinitarians, denominational folks, theory is all they're hung up on. And that's great, but let's have some practicality. Jesus ever liveth to make intercession for us. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is not in the earth. That bothers people. If he's seated at the right hand of the Father, it means the Father's not in the earth. That bothers people. But by the fact that Jesus said, I must leave you, what does leaving mean? Why are Catholics better at Trinitarianism than denominational folks? Because they believe in the ascension. He ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father where he ever liveth to make intercession. Ever liveth to make intercession. So there's a father in heaven at a throne, and there's a son seated at his right hand. And he said, if I leave you, I'll pray the father, and he'll give you the comforter, the Holy Spirit, who I'll send, and he'll send in my name. And so then the Holy Spirit was poured out. Jesus ascended on the 40th day after his resurrection, and the Holy Spirit was sent 10 days later, on the day of Pentecost, following Jewish agricultural calendars. And so uh, we asked the question, uh, I believe, last Wednesday. So what happened in the 10 days where there was no Jesus in the earth and no Holy Spirit poured out? Did things fall apart? No, because his omnipresence makes him everywhere all at once, maintaining all things by the word of his power, according to the book of Hebrews. So the rabbis asked this question. How 
they, the, the, the rabbinical doctrine of the Shekinah, which is the glory, which is the anointing, which we call the Holy Spirit, the, they were met with arguments that said, if God is omnipresent, then how do you explain the Shekinah? That is the tangible presence of God in a moment or in a place. And the, the argument they used, which I think is beautiful, 2,000 years ago, they said, if there's a cave at the seaside, the ocean will fill that cave, and yet the ocean is not diminished. I thought, man, those guys were really close to finding God. And they just didn't. So God maintains all things by the word of his power, and yet he poured out of his spirit upon all flesh, except it was only 120 in the beginning. All flesh was only 120. And we want to understand these aspects. And I can't say this enough, especially as I teach. You guys can't let this be your weekly Bible study. You have to study the Bible for yourself. You have to go home and look at what you wrote down. You have to study something that I'm not teaching on your own. Or maybe God sparks something in you while I'm teaching you to go study and run, run those verses yourself because he wants to show you something different. But the danger of a teaching church is you assume that my knowledge equals your lifestyle. And just hear me clearly. If you're not regularly in the Bible, you are out of the will of God. You are living at the edge of eternity where all Bibles have been made available to you with the swipe of a thumb. You can read it anywhere you go. You can even put an earbud in and have some guy read it to you. And yet, a lot of you are still more on social media or YouTube or entertainment than you are in your Bible. And so what happens is when you should know God, when you should be, you have become. When the time has come that you should be teachers, some of you, the Bible says, you have become need of a teacher again. And that doesn't glorify God. How long can you walk with somebody and still not know them? How long can you be born again and still not know God? How long can you own a Bible and still not know his doctrines? Because the Bible is not hard. You don't have to read it in the King James. Find a newer translation, NIV, which is nearly inspired version, NAS, which is a better version, NLT, New King James. Just pick something and get to know your God. And that way you can grow on your own. I appreciate you being an easy to teach church, but you have to know God for yourself. Just because... I know Dr. Barclay, my pastor, doesn't mean you do. <clears throat> Let's make something up. Just because I know the president doesn't mean you do. And just because I know about God and know God doesn't mean you do. This is not, what do they call that? The transitive property of mathematics. Pastor knows God. I know pastor, therefore I know God. If A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That is the lunacy and the self-deception of modern Christianity. I know pastor. Pastor knows God. I know God. I know pastor. Pastor knows doctrine. I know doctrine. It's not how it works. I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ by myself. I will not stand there with you. You will not stand there with me. He's not going to ask you, how much did you learn from your pastor? He's going to say, what did you do with what you did learn, and did you learn any on your own? 
Amen. So we got to be a little bit hungry. Coming back now to the Trinity. All right. So he's poured out upon all flesh, except we made this, and this is a big argument. This is a big point because I want to, even when I go back and listen to what I'm about to say, I think, man, that sounds hard. Then I get under the anointing and I have all the confidence again. I think, okay, it's got to be, it's got to be right because under the anointing, I feel bold. I listen to it outside the anointing on a, my own podcast because I, I critique myself and think, man, that's, that's a hard saying. Who can hear it? Then I get under the anointing, like, it's right. It's right. So let's go back and back up this argument. Jesus Christ is resurrected on the third day, early in the morning. But that evening, he appears to his disciples. This is John chapter 20. The evening of his resurrection, which is technically the beginning of the fourth day, because the Jews count days from the time the sun goes down until it sets the next day. So it's evening what we would say of the resurrection, but technically that's the fourth day after the crucifixion. So follow me here. Regardless, that night the Lord appears to his disciples in John 20 and breathes on them, John 20, 21, 22, 23, and says, receive ye the Holy Ghost. The, the thing we have to consider is that Pentecost, which is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, doesn't happen for 50 more days. 37 if you count it a different way according to the Jews, but 47, excuse me, we're not going to split those hairs because that gets convoluted. Let's just say 50 because it's easier. Jesus breathes on them, says, receive ye the Holy Ghost, but the Holy Ghost isn't poured out on all flesh for another 50 days. But they have the Holy Ghost, but he's not given for another 50 days. Jesus doesn't ascend for another 40 after that moment. So we have, we have this conundrum here. They're born again. We see a replay of the creation account in John chapter 2, where he breathed into them the breath, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Jesus, the creator, Elohim, breathed into his disciples the breath of life and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And we know that's the new birth, and they are now born again, except the Holy Ghost is not poured out for another 50 days. So then the theological question we must ask is, could people be born again after that moment? We must answer yes. From the moment of his resurrection, you could be born again. But being born again is a work of the Holy Spirit. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us, that when we're born again, we're baptized by the Spirit into the body. So for 50 days, people are being baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, but the Holy Spirit hasn't been given yet. This is evidence we use to confirm there is a subsequent experience to salvation called the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's the only reason I'm slowing down to make a big, a big in instance of this or a big issue. He's raised from the dead that night. He breathes on them the breath of life. He walks with them for 40 days. 40 days after his resurrection, he's ascended. 10 days after that, the day of Pentecost. So for 50 days, people are being born again. The disciples are moving about, but they haven't gone anywhere because the Lord said you can't. They wait in the upper room for 10 days or in that small community. Then he pours out of his spirit upon all flesh. And then, of course, you can now be born again and spirit-filled. For 50 days, they're born again. And then when they're the Holy Ghost is poured out upon them. They speak with tongues. Now, it's critical because Jesus also said in Acts 1, 8 through 9, 10, 11, don't go anywhere till you receive the promise of the Father. Now, the statement we make, I make, that when I'm not under the anointing, I think, man, that sounds really harsh. We're going to make it again because I'm under the anointing, and I see it in the Scripture. If Jesus told his disciples, don't go anywhere till you have the Holy Spirit, and these disciples were born again, 
then the last marching orders of Jesus Christ, literally four verses before he ascends, is wait and get the Holy Spirit. Then we have a big bulk of the body of Christ unknowingly and ignorantly in rebellion or disobedience to the last commandment Christ gave before his ascension. Don't go anywhere to you receive power on high, from on high. After that, you shall be witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. The reason Christians don't know that is because religiosity and the devil have crept in and said, well, when you get born again, you get all the Holy Spirit there is. But just by those examples that we're running through, just mentally, we see that, yes, you can have a measure, but it's not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, like the day of Pentecost demonstrates. Furthermore, then you jump to Acts chapter 8. We're just doing all this mentally because one of the things I learned as a teacher, if you start turning pages, I start losing momentum. So that's why I don't have you turn there because I know how to keep a momentum. Acts chapter 8, you have the Samaritan revival. Philip the evangelist is out there preaching the gospel. All of Samaria converts, even Simon the sorcerer. And when they believe the teaching of Philip concerning the kingdom and their water baptized, it says, and then uh, Peter and John heard that the Samaritans had received the gospel, they went to pray for them for they had not received the Holy Ghost as of yet. Now, where we might stop and turn the page is if your heart goes, huh, that's in there, in which case then I would have to have us turn there so I could convince you that I know the scripture that I'm quoting to you, even though it's Acts chapter 8, it's the bottom left-hand side of my page in my, my Bible. It's the only anointed Bible you should have, the Cambridge Study Bible. It's in King James, so I don't trust the King James much anymore. So when Peter and John heard that the Samaritans had received the preaching of the kingdom and had been water baptized, but they hadn't received the Holy Ghost for he that hadn't been fallen upon any of them yet, they went down to Samaria. So the problem we have there for the modern Christian is that they believe the preaching of the kingdom. They got water baptized. Do you think Philip the evangelist who just cast out devils, healed the sick, raised the dead in the town, converted the chief sorcerer, you think he's going to baptize any non-converts? This guy's an evangelist. He's got strict standards. And yet, according to Luke, the God-inspired author of the book of Acts, they're born again, they're water baptized, but they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. Now, if we go back and quote Deuteronomy, we need two witnesses, or at least two, at most three, to establish any word. So we have Acts chapter 2 as a witness. They're born again, but they don't have the Holy Ghost. Here's our second witness. They're born again in Samaria, but they don't have the Holy Ghost. But you can't be born again without the Holy Ghost. And so Peter and John go down to Samaria. We say down because it's an elevation change, though they're going to the north. And they pray for them. And Simon saw the sorcerer, former sorcerer, recovering sorcerer, that through the laying on of hands, the Holy Ghost was given. Now that's trippy that through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Ghost was given. He said, can I pay you some money that I might have this power too? And that's when Peter famously rebukes him and says, your money perish with you, for your heart is not right in this matter, for you thought the gift of God could be purchased with money. He says, repent. And so Peter or, uh, Simon repents and says, please pray for me that this judgment doesn't come to me. Through the laying on of hands, the baptism of the Holy Ghost transpires, though it didn't transpire that way in Acts 2. 
It fell supernaturally. But here through the laying on of hands, it happens. But you see born again and water baptized. I don't even think they had that with the upper room. I don't think they were baptized in the name of Jesus yet. I don't know if that doctrine had been worked out yet. But sometime between Acts 2 and Acts 8, believers' baptism is worked out as a key doctrine, though you don't see a transition there in the Scriptures. So Acts 8, they're born again, water baptized, they're disciples of Jesus, but they haven't been baptized in the Holy Ghost yet. Peter and John go down there, they lay hands on them, they get spirit-filled. It's so supernatural. The former sorcerer who understands divine power or demonic power says, I want this power. He understands it's something more than just a hollow prayer, or like Brother Hagin called it, empty hands on empty heads. Something transpired. So then you jump to Acts 10, and you have the same situation with Cornelius' household. Everybody's there. Cornelius has had a vision where an angel came and said, Cornelius, your alms have come up as a memorial before God. Now send down to Joppa for one uh, uh, man, uh, Peter Simon, called Simon, and he will tell you words whereby you and your whole household might be saved. So Peter comes up. He and the Jews that got born again with him, and they preached to Cornelius, the centurion, and Caesarea Philippi on the coast there, in the northeastern corner, northwestern corner of Israel, near Tyre and Zidon. And as he's preaching, the Holy Ghost falls on them. And how do they know? Because Acts 10 says they speak with tongues and magnify God. And then Peter, his, his meeting is interrupted. It's cut short in the middle of his sermon. I guess what the Lord said was the conclusion, though Peter didn't know it was the conclusion. <laughs> All of a sudden, the whole congregation, a great many, 40, 50, we don't know how great this household was, the whole congregation starts instantly speaking in tongues. No interpretation is demanded by Peter. No interpretation is demanded by the Jews who are now born again. And we know Jews can be legalistic. And if, man, you needed interpretation, but there's none. Peter just turns and says, Can any man forbid water that these might be baptized? For it's evident the Holy Ghost has fallen upon them like upon us in the beginning. How was it like us? Nobody prayed for him. Just in a moment. The power of God falls, and they all speak in tongues. And so we see that they evidently got born again through the preaching of the message. You can't speak in tongues without being born again, and the only baptism they're lacking now is the water baptism. And so we see that trifecta, baptized in the body of Christ, baptized in water, baptized in the Holy Ghost. And then Acts 19, <clears throat> you can find Paul coming, to certain, Paul coming to the coast of Ephesus, finding certain disciples, and he asked him, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? That's a problem. Because these guys weren't Trinitarians. Did you know you don't have to be a Trinitarian to be born again? Those guys weren't. Thank God their doctrine got corrected. They were less than non-Trinitarians. They were still operating under Jewish mindset, which is there's only but one God. They said, we didn't know there was a Holy Spirit. So then what were you baptized to? Paul's question. We were baptized into John's baptism. Well, John, he did some baptizing for repentance. But he talked about Jesus who would baptize you in the Holy Ghost and power. So then they get baptized in the name of Jesus. Now they're born again. And now they're water baptized because they're just certain disciples. And Paul lays his hands on them. And they speak with tongues and prophesy. And Paul doesn't require any interpretation. But here are four examples. Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. 
The first and the third one, nobody lays hands on them. The second and the fourth one, people lay hands on them. Everybody gets it. Every, everybody's born again, and then they get spirit-filled. Everybody who gets the Holy Ghost speaks in tongues. The patterns here are undeniable. You can't shake this thing. So the problem then becomes, why would modern churches resist this, reject this? Well, the argument is, well, when that which is perfect has come, that which is imperfect shall be done away with. So what is perfect and what is imperfect? And why do you take one verse in violation of the law of Moses, the law of the Gospels, and the law of the New Testament to build a doctrine? You can't build a doctrine on one verse. When it's convenient, you can, but that makes you a theoretical moron and a doctrinal idiot. You can't take one verse. Tell me what is perfect. Well, Jesus is perfect. Well, he's already come, and he's still in us. Well, the Scriptures. So the argument for that is when the Scriptures are canonized, then that which is imperfect shall be done away with. So when did that happen? Some still debate. The Scriptures aren't fully canonized. How do we know when it was done? Which council? Was it the Nicene Creed, Nicene Council? Was it the 5th century, 6th century, 7th century? There's no scripture that nails down that which is perfect or imperfect. So, so what does it mean for that which is imperfect to be done away with? Because then it says, well, where there's knowledge, it shall perish. It shall cease. Do you still have knowledge? I hope so. How do we advance all these years if knowledge has ceased because the perfect has come? The arguments against tongues are created by religious spirits and propagated so churches can remain powerless and limping along on two-thirds of the Godhead. Because without the Holy Ghost, you don't have power. You have formalities. And so that brings us to the gift of tongues or the baptism of the Holy Ghost. We do make a distinction, which we won't have time to cover tonight, that when you are baptized in the Holy Ghost and you become a practicing Trinitarian and not a theoretical one, then you get to pray in tongues anytime you want to and magnify God. Pray in tongues and prophesy. You get to pray in tongues and do the eight things the New Testament teaches us tongues accomplishes when we pray in tongues. And when we look at these eight things, you can't help but say, well, why would God do away with those? We still need all those. Because the other argument is, well, you know, the early church really needed it. Okay, well, they didn't have trannies in classrooms like we do. I think we need it. I don't know if that term offends you or not. I'm old school. I don't get the updates on what words should be offensive anymore. You know, they didn't have drag queens wanting to entertain our children. They, they, they didn't have the church promoting homosexuality. They didn't have the church promoting pornography. They didn't have the church promoting alcohol. They didn't have the church having... We, I think if anybody needs it, it might be those of us living in the end of days when wickedness abounds and perilous times come. I think if anybody needs the Holy Ghost, it would be us. I mean, is the early church better than us? We who have to bring in the final harvest? I mean, like, we have the bigger work to do and you take away our tools? Plus, you don't find any scripture to back that up. That is a religious doctrine in search of a text rather than a text building a doctrine. And we don't take a concept and go scratching for text. We take text and build a concept. You wouldn't accept it as science because it would be poor science. I'm just going to make up something 
and then go find evidence. And we'll make up a principle. That is honestly modern science. I call it Fauci science now, where you just make up something political and then we just go make up the evidence or say, well, you know, everybody agrees. Well, tell me who everybody is. Scientists agree. Name me two. Well, you know, lots of papers have been written. Forward me the links. Oh, but maybe the church believes this way because they're in, in vain with the spirit of the world, which just makes up stuff and then complains when you don't agree. Eight things praying in tongues does for us. And they're all wonderful. So why wouldn't we want them? So just to review real quick. Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, it says everybody gathered that day. The Parthenians, the Phrygians, the, uh, everybody, the Cretans, they, do hear, they, do, they said we do hear them declare in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. One of the things praying in tongues does is declare the wonderful works of God. Now, what's interesting is, because I have these debates with Baptists and cessationists and Calvinists, etc. Not all Calvinists are cessationists, but not all cessationists are Calvinists. But one of, the, one of the arguments is, well, you know, tongues is important for preaching the gospel. So that's what happened on the day of Pentecost. That is not what happened on the day of Pentecost. They didn't say, we just heard about the Lord Jesus in our own tongue. They said, we heard about the wonderful works of God. Peter had to stand up and preach the gospel to them. And it took him a good 30 or 40 verses. And he called them sinners and called them Christ murderers. He, he was risking his life because you have an angry mob. And just 50 days prior, he's afraid of two girls and a servant. And now he's looking at a mob, staring them down, saying, you did murder the Holy One. You did kill him. It's your fault. And they were cut to the heart and said, what must we do to be saved? They didn't preach the gospel in tongues. There's no proof anywhere. There's no example of the gospel being preached in tongues. They said, we do hear every man in our own tongue, them declare the wonderful works of God. That's the Psalms. Lord, thou art God. Thou hast made heaven and earth and all that is in the earth. You open up your hand and satisfy the need of every living thing. I cry. That's what praying in tongues does. The first thing. The second thing we saw from Romans chapter 8 was that we, we can make intercession. Praying in tongues, the Holy Ghost helps our infirmities. For we know not how to pray for as we ought. For he maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. So there's intercession he maketh intercession for us. I, I think I would be stepping outside the text there, but I think we'll intercede for others, but it does say he maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered, but it's still a guttural groaning, inarticulate speech by the power of the Holy Spirit. So just think about it. If you're not spirit-filled, if you don't speak in tongues, you don't get to declare the wonderful works of God out of your spirit, and you don't get to make Holy Ghost intercession. Yes, Both of those you can do with your own understanding, and you should, I can declare the wonderful works of God, and I can intercede. But sometimes, apparently, the Lord wants to do it himself. Third thing we saw, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 is like the prime fishing hole for a lot of doctrine on tongues. We had said the doctrine of speaking in tongues and the baptism of the Holy Ghost is built over, with over 120 verses, beginning in Isaiah 28, and then jumping to Mark 16, and then John 3, and then... John uh, 7, and uh, then John 20, and, and then Acts 1 and 2. And so there's 120 plus verses that help build this doctrine. 
Acts, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 14 is really where we have a bulk of them. So the first thing it tells us there, other than desire spiritual gifts, but rather you may prophesy, for he that prophesies edifies the church, but he that speaketh in tongue edifies himself. But it says you speak mysteries. So the third thing we see there is praying in tongues speaks mysteries. This is the one I could teach a whole service on, and it's probably worth coming back to whenever we finish this. But just know this is the most critical one. All the other seven you can do with your own understanding, and you should. And they can be done in your native tongue, and they should. But the speaking of mysteries is the one thing that is strictly exclusive to tongues, and you can't speak mysteries in your native tongue because they're mysteries. Except to pray them out is the only way to declare them. And so the irony is you're speaking unspoken things. Now, one of the stories I use all the time, I don't have too many of these. I, can, I don't make up new ones. It's not like I'm a television preacher or something, making up stuff to keep the hype going. Though we are on television, but boy, I tell you, it's cheap stuff. Uh, I wish Luke was in here. We just had like three more slots added to, uh, four more or five more slots a month added to what we're paying down in the southern part of the state. So I'm on TV down, you know, it's, it's cable access, but I think I preach like 12 or 15 hours a month for 250 bucks. It's dirt cheap. Those aren't hoity-toity Christian television rates. That's like eight to 10,000 for 30 minutes. No, no, no. I get to preach 12-something hours for like 300 bucks. Rate hasn't even gone up in 10 years. I think they're just desperate for programming. So they called Luke. Does your pastor want more time? I'm like, we don't have time to edit more. Just play my stuff over and over and over again. Nobody's called to complain yet. So either they don't watch or they don't care. Or I don't know. God knows what he's doing. If we need to shut it off, we will. Coming back to these mysteries. So I was raised in Seattle for high school, took Japanese in high school. Uh, had a lot of friends that were Japanese. Worked on a Japanese, uh, worked on a vegetable farm that was owned by Japanese Americans. Um, uh, and then worked with Japanese exchange students. So my Japanese is pretty good. So I come to college, I get spirit filled in 96. So one time Jeff Harris and I were praying and Mark Karen was there. We were all praying together, but Jeff begins to pray in tongues. And this was the thing that totally tilted my mind and, and sealed this into me completely. He was praying in Japanese, but I understood him in, with my understanding. But what Jeff was saying in Japanese over and over again is, yes, sir, I understand. Except Jeff's praying in Japanese and he don't understand. But he kept saying over and over again, yes, sir, I understand. Well, he would say, yes, sir, I understand. I understand. I'll do that. Yes, sir, I'll do that. Yes, sir, I understand. I'll do that. But he's praying in Japanese. And the other cool thing, Japanese is a very hierarchy, honor-based language, and he's, he's talking as if he's talking to his sensei or his emperor or his father, because he is, all of those. So we get done, and I'm just tripping out, because he's saying it in Japanese. I said, I remember asking Jeff, Jeff, you speak Japanese? And he said, Chris, I'm from Watertown. I barely speak English. <laughs> that was his direct quote. But what, what stra struggled my mind was that he said in, in Japanese, yes, sir, I understand you, and I will do that. And that's what Corinthians 14 goes on to say. My understanding is unfruitful, howbeit in the spirit I speak mysteries. What's the mystery? Whatever he was praying out, his spirit man totally understood it and said, yes, sir, I will do that. I understand you, and I will do that. 
The mysteries part is the most, to me, is the most important part of tongues. Because if you cannot pray out mysteries, what are you missing? Paul said, we speak the gospel in a mystery. The Bible says there's things God has for us that's not been revealed to us yet. That's a mystery. God says, I have a plan for you. That's a mystery. God says, I have not seen nor ear heard nor it's entered in your heart what, what he has for you. That's a mystery. How will you ever know it? It has to be prayed out. It doesn't just fall in your lap. It has to be prayed out. It has to be processed through prayer. How do you do that if all you can do is pray according to your own understanding when the Bible says you don't know it yet? Well, he gave us a way to do it. He gave us the gift of tongues, the ability to pray in the Spirit. And the more we pray in the Spirit, the more of these, more of these mysteries we can process and execute and get out there. We pray divine appointments. We pray divine meetings. We pray protection. We intercede in this regard, and we pray this over our kids, and we pray that over our kids. I, my, my faith and my doctrine is so entrenched in tongues, you couldn't give me a trillion dollars to deny it or never do it again. I would look at you and say, your money will perish with you. It's not worth the compromise. A lot can be said about praying in tongues concerning mysteries, but I will tell you this, the more you do it, the better your life will be. And it's been given to us to give us an unfair advantage in processing life, getting us where we need to be, the right place at the right time, passing through crowds, meeting the right person, and almost, pardon the expression, but almost living a charmed life. Almost like a bad penny, you just, or like a cat, just always landing on its feet. Or buttered toast, it always lands butter down. <laughs> Whatever it is, praying in the Spirit will benefit that. It's one of the reasons Jesus said, I'm leaving you. So think about this, because I don't, non-tongue talkers, they're not blasphemous. They don't mean to be. Their denominational prism, their, not prison, prism, their denominational uh, perspective has jaded them against the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And honestly, Pentecostals, Charismatics, Word of Faith, and TBN has not helped the cause at all. But you eliminate all that fat, all that greed, all that pride, all that excessive, some of it's just familiar spirits, and you're still stuck with Scripture. And what will you do with Scripture? But I honestly feel bad, I really genuinely do, for non-spirit-filled preachers and non-spirit-filled believers because I know the advantage it gives us. It gives us a built-in GPS. It gives us built-in horsepower. It gives us built-in four-wheel driving. They're driving around in Mama's old Buick with an old gazetteer trying to figure out where they're going with bald tires. Yeah, they're going to go somewhere, sometimes into a ditch. Don't let anybody talk you out of praying in tongues, not even yourself. So that was number three. Number four, at the same passage, 1 Corinthians 14 says that we edify ourselves. We build ourselves up. That's wonderful. You can do that in English, but sometimes there's nobody around, and you don't even know what's wrong to know what to pray. Praying in tongues is like a, a peppy pick-me-up. If, if It really is if you'll stop to think about it. Anytime you feel down, depressed, not worth anything, and you're spirit-filled, you, if you just stop and go, there's instant confirmation you're born again and God lives in you. And some supernatural just slipped out of your mouth. And it also confirms Trinity. I like there is one. 
That's the Holy Spirit in me, and Jesus is in heaven, and he's at the right hand of the Father. Tongues is instant confirmation of Trinitarian doctrine. It's instant confirmation you're born again. It's instant confirmation he's not denied you. It's instant confirmation you've not blasphemed him or denied him or going to hell. It's instant God in you. Just the logical understanding of what's happening should encourage you. I know sometimes we get so shrouded in discouragement, somebody needs to come along and just smack us. Just like, wake up. But if you can maintain, as Ephesians says, maintain the glow or maintain your fire, it won't take a lot to encourage you. And now if you hadn't noticed, one of America's addictions is depression. I I was in a mental health training yesterday. I go to it once a month now, or I'm trying to go to it once a month at the police station, and they handed out some information. One in five Americans has mental illness. That's 20% of you if we fit the American statistic. And then I think it was one in seven or one in, one in 10 are severely mental ill. But that doesn't hit you overnight. It hits you little by little by feeling sorry for yourself by isolating yourself, by thinking nobody cares. That's a demon talking to people. And you only allow depression to rest upon you when you allow that thing to talk and you don't answer it back. But the other thing that's sick and twisted is I've watched people over the years learn to use depression to to get attention. Holly, nobody loves me. And I'm just doing social media, but in person. Nobody really likes me, Holly. Nobody really appreciates me. And what I'm fishing for affirmation, that's not true. Same thing adults do on social media. Both of them are grossly immature. But also, have you noticed everybody on social media battles mental health? Might there be some kind of weird, perverse connection between insecurity and using depression and manipulating people for affirmation, when really the solution is pray, read your Bible, and glorify God. Fire up the stove, and even the waspers will flee. Fire up the stove, and cobwebs will burn. Fire off the stove, fire up the stove, and the rats will move out. You get it hot enough, you'll cook them. You get it super hot, you'll turn them to ash. Get it really hot, the whole house will appreciate you. Or just slowly lose your glow Oh, nobody loves me. When's the last time you prayed in tongues? I don't really think I can anymore. Yeah, you can. You're just too lazy. Here, take me by the hands. I'm going to pray with you. On the count of three. One, two, three, go. Do that every day. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. That's awesome. That's, That's how it ought to be. Every day. I can't get you into heaven, and I can't get you into joy, and I can't get you into peace, and I can't get you into your Bible. It's up to you. Christians will go to hell because they want to. And they are depressed because they want to be. And they're discouraged because they want to be. And they're defeated because they want to be because they've learned to use it to get attention. And that's a perverse, perverse mindset. But tongues, well, man, we edify ourselves. It's going to be hard to be depressed praying in tongues every day. 
So you're going to be discouraged, sure. You're going to be hit, sure. But as soon as you get knocked down, you can't help but go, oh, yeah. God lives in me. Look at it burp out there. It feels like a little bit of that ocean cave. The ocean's coming back out. Here comes another wave. And yet the ocean is not diminished. I'm just royally, get so full, even the roof of your cave is wet. All right, 1 Corinthians 14. We need to advance the topic a little bit. Maybe I can tell a story or two. I like to let the scriptures speak for themselves here, but the stories are fun. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. The fifth thing, we kind of briefly covered this. Verse 14, 1 Corinthians 14, 14. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing. It's not bad that your, your understanding is unfruitful. Because I have had folks say, it's not good that your understanding is unfruitful. You ever been to college? Yeah. Did you understand anything the first semester and a half? No. Was that bad? Well, let me listen to you talk. You don't even know what half you're saying. You ever been in Middle Tennessee? You don't understand half what they're saying. <laughs> so sometimes Middle Tennessee, blah, 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 blah. And then it's like the end of the typewriter. Blah, Ding! That blah 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 blah. Ding! You live here long enough, you don't understand what these folks are saying. Strange people, strange tongue. I think somewhere the Middle Tennessee plateau slang accent bumps around and runs into Vietnamese because it sounds like rubber bands popping. <laughs> yeah, like Pastor Titus said. From Zimbabwe talking to a local. He said, My God, man, is that even English you're speaking? <laughs> he said, if, if I do accents, it's racist, but a Zimbabwean can do accents and it's humorous. I love the two way road of white privilege. Of course I don't. Stupid. It's hypocritical. If I. Fifth thing we can do in tongues is pray. Pray in the Spirit. Prayer covers so much stuff. We have a study on prayer. There's seven types of prayer in the New Testament. Most Christians don't have a clue. They just lump it all together. Intercessions, petitions, supplications, giving of thanks, groanings and travailings, worship, praise. There's all sorts of things we do in prayer. So this is kind of a general statement here. But when we do it, our understanding is unfruitful. I might be praying for you. might be praying for my mission trip. might be praying for my kids. might be praying for my future in-laws. might be praying for my future outlaws. might be praying for a future book. I'm praying. My understanding is unfruitful. That, that rolls into the mystery part. But my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. Now, one of the things I teach folks to do a lot, in fact, I was just telling one of our members today, they were looking at some decisions to, that they had to make. I said, pray in tongues on this 10, 15 minutes a day for the next couple weeks. He said, yes, sir. I said, just get in the Spirit, pray in tongues, and say, Lord, I need direction. Right now, it's a mystery to me. So what better way to deal with the mystery than to pray in mysteries? Right now, my understanding is unfruitful anyway. Might as well get in agreement with it and pray it out. One of the things I have learned to do in my decision-making is to pray in tongues and wait for the peace to arise or the confirmation that this is not going to be God. I do that a lot in tongues. The other thing I do, and I've done this for probably 20-something years, is when I study the Bible, because I am 
primarily a teacher, but I've always been a student of the Word since I repented and got right with God, is that if I have a question on Scripture, I look at it, I pray, and I start asking the Lord questions. What does that mean? That feels like that's connected this over here. And Lord, I don't know what that means. I'm going to pray in tongues on this. And Lord, I've got to trust you to give me some answers. And I might get the answer in five minutes. I might get the answer in five weeks. But if I pray in tongues on something, I'll get the answer. I have, in the last seven years, six years, I've learned to use it to write my books. Lord, this is something's not right here. I need, I need doctrine here. I need to be able to resolve this argument. I need, I need connection on this book. I need to figure out where that source is. I'm going to pray in tongues. And I can get up, walk around, pray in tongues for 20 minutes and instantly know how to write the whole chapter. And I didn't have it 20 minutes ago. Or whether it's curriculum, because I write a lot of curriculum. Lord, I need to see how to lay this curriculum out. I'm not, I'm not creating any doctrine. I'm not creating any scripture. I just need understanding. All I'm teaching is what's already been taught. I just want to see how to lay it out better, and I can tell that what I got's not working. So I'll pray in tongues to pray out unknown things. And then the wonderful thing, as he says in the next part, I will pray with the understanding is that the understanding will eventually come, sometimes instantaneously, sometimes over the course of 5, 10, 15 days. I had, with the botany book, I had a revelation from God concerning the root of bitterness, and I, 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 by the Spirit of God, I knew that I knew that I knew that it was a certain plant and that it had to be that. This is the only way it could be anything but that. It fit all the typology. And I was so confident, I wrote the chapter out. But I said, Lord, I'm not publishing this chapter until I get scientific evidence on this. I need a research paper. I need, I need some kind of periodical. I need, I need something from a textbook. I need confirmation that this plant parasitizes this plant. I got to have it. I said, I can't publish this till I get, I need that. So I spent six, seven, probably six months, maybe eight months praying in tongues on that regularly. Come back, edit the chapter. I'd say, Lord, I need evidence. I know you spoke it to me and I trust you, but this is for the scientific community. And some of them still want evidence. Not liberal scientists or political scientists, like not poli-sci, but politically minded scientists. They don't need evidence. They just need money. They make it say whatever you want it to say if you fund their research. But the real scientists, they still want evidence. So every time I come back, I pray in tongues on it. And one day I was praying in tongues, and I just instantly knew, like instantly knew, to go back in my emails, find this professor from Italy, reach out to him. Just knew to do it. So what are the odds? I got a research paper. I can email a guy I don't know in Italy who's a professor of agri-science and parasitizing plants of the Mediterranean. And I said, hey, got a couple of your papers. You've really helped me. I'm writing a book. Is there any proof that this plant parasitizes this plant? He says, it's well known. Hallelujah. Oh. So I was like, oh, I need evidence. Can you, can you give me some evidence? And he dumped me like an 80-page paper. And I wept. I wept because it was an answer to prayer that the Lord spoke to me at my kitchen table in Tennessee that this plant parasitizes this plant, and that's why this scripture fits. That's great, Lord. I need evidence. And God knows who has it, and God knows who I know and who I don't know. It just took six or eight months of praying in tongues on the situation, a little bit here and there. The work on the book went on because it's more than just one chapter on the broom tree. 
And it, all of a sudden, right there, like only God can do that. Of all the people I've spent 30 months emailing and connecting with, the Lord speaks to me to the one guy who has the paper who says, Every, that's a well-known fact. Here's some research for you. Tongues. Tongues did that. Well, tongues has been done away with. In your life it has because you don't know the Trinity. But in my life, no, no. I use it for all sorts of things, like figuring out what plant parasitizes what plant in the Levant. Because if he's the creator, he knows everything. Amen. How about number six? I will sing with the Spirit. Oh, that's awesome. Singing in the Spirit. You can do it right now if you wanted to. Just start singing in the Spirit. It's even better when a stronger anointing hits you and it starts to have its own melody that you've never heard before and it starts to flow and you start to pick up a melody and a chorus and a bridge and then you just sing to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. That's a wonderful thing. Of course, we can sing with our understanding too, but you can sing in the Spirit. Our church, when I first took over, so beginning in about 2008 or nine, we had like two and a half years of revival where we got Holy Ghost songs every Sunday night. We recorded over 130 of them, and they always started off by singing in tongues, and then Ginger would pick up the melody, and then the team would get the rest of the music, and before long, I mean, most of those songs averaged 30 minutes long. Most of you were here to remember that, and the lyrics were the interpretation, and they always rhymed, and we had 30s jazz, and we had Latin music, and we had Irish music, and we had folksy music, and we had rock music, and we had children's songs, 130 plus songs. That's how many we have recorded in the course of two years. There's only 52 weeks in a year. There were times I'd say, Ginger, let's get four songs tonight. And we'd crank out four songs by the Holy Ghost. They all started in tongues. There might have been one or two that didn't. Ginger maybe got it while I was preaching, but We'll say 99% of them started off in tongues, and then the interpretation were 30 minutes of lyrics. You can't do that for two years straight if it's been done away with. The old team was good. They weren't 130 songs in two years good. Nobody in Nashville is 130 new songs good. But the Holy Ghost is. So I like that. Sing with the Spirit. Sing with the understanding also. Some of those songs I still sing. So we sing, uh, Heal by the Stripes. Heal by the Stripes. Heal by the Stripes of Jesus. We also sing, Don't Stop, Don't Stop, Don't Stop. That was the Irish one. And Michael Dingwall was on the saxophone, and somehow the anointing got on him, and it sounded like bagpipes. How do you make a saxophone sound like bagpipes? And Big Guy was on the snare. It was this marching Scottish hymn of Don't Stop. And that was when I was being sued. And that was an anthem that made my heart sob because my spiritual mom who was suing me and it was my whole world was imploding. And we got that song because God spoke to me and said, don't stop, don't stop, don't stop. No, you don't mess with the Holy Church. How about bless? Verse 16 says, that was verse 15. Verse 16, this is the seventh thing we do. The seventh thing we do is found in verse 16 of chapter 14. Can you keep your numbers straight? The Mexican guy at the restaurant last night was teaching Bud Bud how to count to 20 in Spanish. He can get to 10, and then we went to 100 and 200. And I said, hi, hi, hi. I'm not a Spanish guy. Verse 16, else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen? 
So one of the things we can do in the Spirit is bless, something we can do in English. So what's the blessing? Well, you can bless God, which is like worship. You can bless a person you're praying for. Many times when I pray in tongues over people, I can tell I'm declaring the blessing of God. It's almost like a prophetic declaration over them. Uh, when I was in Kenya back in November, it doesn't matter whether it's October or November, but I was in Kenya a couple months ago. Uh, Pastor Matt was having this big conference and great praise and worship going on. And uh, two Rastafarians, or maybe it was just one Rastafarian and a buddy, had come into the service off the street, middle of the day. So I went back to talk to this Rastafarian. There are a lot of Rastafarians in Africa, which doesn't make sense because that's a Jamaican thing, but the Rastafarians worship Haile Selassie, the, uh, I think it's Haile Selassie II of Ethiopia, who was a Christian, but they think he was the incarnate Jesus Christ. But Haile Selassie said from the jail after he was overthrown, I will die in this jail of starvation. I am not God, I am a man. The Rastafarians still worship Haile Selassie. They call him, well, his birth name was Ja Rastafari. Anyway, Haile Selassie. So anyway, the Rastafarians in this service. So I'm witnessing to him. Are you born again? No, but my wife is. Okay, but he was enjoying the worship. So as I turn around and start walking back towards the front of the church to enjoy worship, I'm praying in tongues. And as I'm praying in tongues, I think, I know these words. And I'm, I'm trying to go, I'm fluent in no language but English, so don't think I'm smarter than I am. But I like, but I, I dabble in a lot of languages. I like, I know these words. What are these words? And then I realize in Swahili, I'm saying, Lord Jesus, you're welcome here. You're welcome here. Keribusana. Yesu Keribusana. You're welcome here, Lord. You're welcome here. That's blessing in the spirit. It's coming out. Nobody can hear me because it's loud music. Africans don't do like Methodist music. It's loud. 150 dB, six inches from your face. <laughs> But that's what the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is telling Jesus he's welcome in our meeting. The Holy Spirit, through tongues, which happens to be Swahili, which I understand a little bit of, is telling the Lord Jesus he's welcome in our meetings. Now, as it were, I'm in Kenya, so everybody speaks Swahili, but it wasn't for any of them. It's just for me and for the Lord, obviously. So we can bless with the Spirit. Now, it's good to have an interpretation. Otherwise, if somebody's by you and they don't know, they can't say amen, seeing he understands not what you say. And the last thing is number 8, which is in verse 17. For thou verily givest thanks well. The eighth thing we can do in tongues is give thanks well. Wouldn't you want to give thanks well? Not give thanks bad, not give thanks pathetically, but give thanks well. So yeah, you can give thanks well in tongues, but the other's not edified. So if I pray in tongues, I can give thanks well. If I want the other person beside me to hear me give thanks well, it should be in the language they understand, but God may not have me do it or interpret it for them. But I want you to see on the positive aspect, though the perspective of 1 Corinthians 14 is trying to balance, so make sure things are done decently in order, that there's a time when we pray in tongues and one of the things it's doing is giving thanks well. Everything we can do in English, we can do in tongues, or I should say our native tongue. And it would be better because it's spirit-led, spirit-inspired, spirit-breathed. The only thing we can't do in English is speak mysteries. But here's eight things that we can do by the Holy Spirit in a prayer life. Is there any wonder why the devil would resist this and stop it and mock it and criticize it and convince some Christians who are students of the Word, well, I believe it's real, 
And I believe it's for today. I just don't believe it's for me. Oh, really? Well, you just believe a, a familiar spirit. Because that's not the truth. In Acts 2, every Christian got it. That's a pretty good principle. In Acts 8, every Christian got it. Oh, that's two witnesses. Lord, do we stop there? Nope. Acts 10, every Christian got tongues. There's three witnesses. And the Lord does this one better. In Acts 19, every Christian gets it. So for a Christian to say it's not for me is to deny scriptures they don't know are there. It's not willful denial. It's just ignorance. I, I want us to know this because we're probably 99% spirit-filled in here. Like 99% of us are tongue talkers. But we need to be doing it more. Praying in your car. Praying in your home. I would honestly tell you probably 80% of my prayer time is tongues. Maybe 90%. Today I led prayer. Prayed in tongues the whole time. I prefer praying in tongues. I can get very deep in the spirit and pray out things. But I would honestly tell you 80, 85% of my prayer life is tongues. I can pray in English. I'm praying English for a couple hours if I want to. And there are times you need to. You almost need to surface and pray with your own understanding. But if it's just me, a lot of my prayer time is in tongues. Because I have to keep things moving. I would probably say even a bulk of that, probably half of that, is the mystery part. Praying out mysteries. Because I've got to keep the church rolling forward by the hand of God. I've got sermons to write. I've got people to help. I've got books that we're working on now to publish for other people. There's just so many things. I've got to have the wisdom of God. But so do you. So do you. So if you want to worship God, pray in tongues. If you need intercession, pray in tongues. If you're stuck in a rut, pray in tongues. If you need encouragement, pray in tongues. If you want to sing, pray in tongues. If you want to bless God or give thanks, pray in tongues. Now, having seen all that from Scripture, isn't it blasphemous for somebody to say, tongues is of the devil? Oh, isn't it even more, not more demonic, but maybe perhaps bizarre it's been, to hear him say, it's been done away with? You mean God doesn't want me to declare wonderful works? You mean God doesn't want me to intercede? You mean God doesn't want me to speak mysteries? You mean that was only for the early church, unless it was 70 A.D., but yet John was still doing it in 95 A.D.? Okay, maybe when the scriptures were canonized, but that wasn't settled until after the 5th century, more close to the 9th century. So then did anybody notify the saints speaking in tongues in India? How do we know when it ceased? It doesn't make any sense to me, not any scriptural sense. But I love being able to open my mouth, even on my most discouraged day, and it's almost like the Lord slipping out of my soul. Of course, and the more you pray, the deeper it gets the more powerful, then you can shift gears into diverse kinds of tongues, and it isn't your normal tongues. It's all sorts of dialects. And then your mind's like, that feels French. That feels so French. And then you're like, oh, that feels Russian. I feel like I'm, feel like I'm singing in backwards Russian. Oh, I feel like I'm in like Papua New Guinea. Now, that's got to be what they speak. That sounds like Ewok language right there. <laughs> if you've prayed enough in tongues, you've been there. Your mind's like, I feel like I'm in China right now. And then, you know, somewhere overseas, they're going, I feel like an American right now. This is how a cowboy talks. Howdy, 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 howdy. <laughs> I did tell you, our first trip to uh, Uganda, we taught on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, prayed for this church. We were in this church down in the slums. 
And I think we prayed, Pastor Brett and I probably prayed for 25 or 30 people to get spirit filled and it happened all very quickly. But this one lady, she just wasn't getting it, but she was praying in English. They, Africans speak multiple languages. Americans barely speak one. She's praying. I think, well, that's it. But no, it wasn't it. There wasn't any power to it. But I'm like, this is tongues. This is tongues. So I asked Pastor Suna, could you come over here, sir? Is this, is this her native tongue? Is this her tribal tongue? Is this Luganan or is this tongues? And he said, sister, pray in tongues. And what, he said, pray. So she began to pray in what I thought was tongues. He said, no, 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 this is Lugandan. And then I realized why it sounded like tongues to me because it was the tongues I had been praying in for months, but probably in preparation to go to Uganda for the first time. I don't, I don't really know. If you'll pray in tongues enough, you'll have all sorts of fun experiences that you may not have answers for at first, but you'll come to them later and you'll be able to share them with people and be encouraged by them yourself. And I don't know, you just can't, can't talk me out of it. When I got baptized in the Holy Ghost, it put a turbo boost on my walk with Christ. And tongues is great. And we've talked a lot about it, but it isn't just the ability to pray in tongues and to do these eight things in a supernatural way. It's, it's the, this strong abiding presence of the Holy Ghost that quickens your mind. It quickens your worship. For me, it, it, it exponentially expanded my mind's ability to retain scripture and know God and see things. I think some of it even activated the calling of God on my life. You can't talk me out of it. No theologian, no cessationist, no pastor, no preacher, no mega church, no little church. I've just walked with it too long. In time of need, it's always tongues comes out. And I'm glad I have it. I'm glad somebody told me about it. I'm glad somebody kept it alive. I'm glad I came to it before the seeker-friendly movement dried up all the good Pentecostal churches out of fear that the visitor would be freaked out. If they're freaked out by God, they're going to hate heaven. They're going to be really disappointed. Why don't we bow our heads here? Let's pray in tongues for a moment here. And we'll, we'll pray and dismiss. Oh, Father, we worship you. We thank you. Thank you for the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Thank you for the opportunity to pray in tongues. We thank you, Lord, for helping us. We thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be spirit-filled like those in the day of the Pentecost, like those in Samaria, like those in Cornelius' household, like those there in Ephesus. We thank you for the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. And we thank you that that we can declare your wonderful works. We can make intercession for ourselves. We're thankful, Lord, that we can speak mysteries. We're thankful, Lord, that we can edify. We're thankful, Lord, that we can pray. We can sing. We can give thanks. We can bless. We can do all these things. Your scriptures declare us. Thank you, Father, for the gift of tongues and the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Father, may we never let the thing cool off. May we never let it dry up. May we stay in it, stay with it. May we pray in tongues daily. May we pray in tongues more than we think we have time to. And may we pray till we tap into that deep river, that deep flow of the Holy Spirit. Father, may we, may we learn to be spiritual. May praying in tongues teach us how to navigate spiritual things and not just simply theological things. Father, 
Goreba baleva leba baleva kushto reba baleva kushto Arba baleva kushto leba baleva kaleba baleva kuleba baleva leba kushto Foreba baleva kushto leba karishikida leba baleva kushto Hereba baleva leba baleva kushto leba baleva kushto Soreba ba kushto leba baleva kushto leba baleva kushto Arba balavo kushto le babalavo kushto le bakadish kidele babako Arba kushto 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 Sore babakash kidish kidele babakushto Sore babalavo kushto le babalavo kushto le babakushto Zore babalavo kushto le babalavo kushto Vore babalavo kushto Arba kushto le babala vokushto le baka. Zore babala vokushto roboku. Jesus akadisha kada babala vokushto le babala vola babala vokushto. Vola babala vola babala vokushto. Fala bokushto le babala vokushto le bakushto. Jesus, 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 we thank you, Father. Thank you for allowing us to pray in the Spirit of God to build ourselves up in our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost like Jude verse 20 says. May we build ourselves up time and time and time and time and time again. May we teach our kids to be consistent. May they, all of our kids get spirit-filled at a young age. May our new members, if they're not spirit-filled, may they get it. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to have the gift of the Holy Ghost, the promise of the Father given to us that we might have power to be witnesses in the earth. We thank you, Father, for allowing us to know this. And we pray for the other parts of the body of Christ who maybe are ignorant of this or even whole denominations who have shunned it or maybe turned their back on it. May their eyes be opened. May they have an encounter and an experience with God. Father, I thank you for awakening the body of Christ to this promise of the Father. If the early church needed it, the last day's church needs it just as much. We're not writing scriptures, Lord, but we're dealing with darkness all over the whole earth. May your glory arise and shine upon us. Uh, let's lift our hands and give thanks to the Lord. Let's bless him. Father, we thank you for wisdom. We thank you for ministering to your children. Lord, their hearts, their hearts, O oh Lord, are to serve you. Their hearts, O oh Lord, are to know you. Their hearts, O oh Lord, or to make the right decision. That's why they came up in this prayer line. They want to make the right decision. Lord, see their hearts. They said, Lord, I don't know what to do, but I want to please you. Father, I believe you're obligated to give your children direction. You, you said your word would be a lamp and a light. May that anointing minister to them. May they know what to do. May they wake up knowing what to do. May the wisdom of God present itself. And I know they'll obey you. And I thank you for the baptism of the Holy Ghost, helping us, setting us free, helping us, speaking through us, touching us with supernatural power and fire. We thank you for the promise of the Father. Thank you, Lord, for letting us remain a Holy Ghost, Spirit-filled church. Help us, Lord, to get deeper into the Spirit and accomplish greater things for you. In Jesus' name, amen.